Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. Often on this show, we get to do a lot of really interesting deep dives into specific disciplines or problems, like growth, product design, content strategy, all these things that are really integral parts of the product building puzzle. But great products in all their glory are just one facet of building a great and profitable company. So when we can, it's really insightful to get founders on the show. And this week, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Wade Foster, co-founder and CEO of Zapier. Zapier is a workflow automation software that integrates with and connects 800 different apps, including the likes of Salesforce, MailChimp, Slack, Trello, even Intercom. It's also got an interesting backstory in that it was a startup founded six years ago from a small Midwestern college town, Columbia, Missouri. Zapier is also already profitable, having taken a lean fundraising approach, which Foster breaks down pretty candidly in our chat. I think a lot of companies kind of fall in the spectrum of like, I'm bootstrapping definitely, or I'm like going up the VC alphabet. There is a different approach, which is saying, hey, if the in our life cycle of our company, we need this, let's take it. But as our company grows, if we don't need it, let's not take it. We also get into the challenge of marketing what appears to be a technical product to non-technical users. The way we've tried to approach it is to just showcase and make heroes as many of them as possible and say like, hey, here's how an accountant uses Zapier. Here's how a lawyer uses Zapier. Here's how a real estate agent uses Zapier. Why Zapier, even from the beta get-go, charged for its product? It allowed us to more easily prioritize those early customer calls and figure out who should we, who we should be talking to because these folks are motivated to solve the problem. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, we've published over 85 interviews to date, and you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, anywhere you regularly tune in for podcasts. But now, let's hop into the studio, where I'm joined by Zapier CEO, Wade Foster. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Wade, welcome to the show this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, at Intercom, we're big fans of Zapier and all the work that you and your team are doing. But for any of our listeners who may not be as familiar, can you just give us a quick feel for your mission as a company and the problem that you're ultimately trying to solve? Sure. So Zapier is a workflow automation productivity software. We integrate with about something like 800 different web apps, all the apps you can think of, things like Google Apps, Salesforce, MailChimp, Slack, Trello, Intercom, of course, probably anything you can think of and allows any type of person, whether you're technical or not technical, you can quickly set up these integrations that let you automate kind of some of the routine stuff. So think like an easy example might be uh, anytime you get an email with an attachment, automatically save that attachment to Dropbox or Box or something like that. Or if someone fills out a form on your site, automatically put them into Intercom so you can follow up with them. Uh, so little things like that that you end up doing manually, routine, Zapier can just automate away so you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. So sort of instead of having to invest heavily in some engineering resources to get that stuff started, you can make it quicker, easier, faster from the get-go. Exactly. So you mentioned integrations and APIs, and those are all things that are commonly associated with products for more technical people. But as you mentioned, this is something that non-technical people can use as well. And I get a sense that your team has been trying to make that more prevalent in marketing these days. So for, I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with this challenge too, and that they don't want to be pigeonholed as a product for technical people, when in reality, it's supposed to help other teammates as well. How have you thought about and approached this problem? 
You know, I think the biggest thing for us is just showcasing our users. You know, we've done some analysis on our user base. Less than 8% of our users would classify themselves as developers. So we know that the vast majority of people who are using Zapier aren't technical. They don't classify themselves as technical. And so the way we've tried to approach it is to just showcase and make heroes as many of them as possible and say like, hey, here's how an accountant uses Zapier. Here's how a lawyer uses Zapier. Here's how a real estate agent uses Zapier. And just kind of dig into the breadth of people from all types of industries, all types of backgrounds, all types of geographies who are using Zapier to be successful in whatever line of work that they're in. And hopefully over time that like connects with different audiences because people can relate and see like, oh, I can use this. This does seem like it could be a tool for me. And I think one of the challenges for us is it is a market education problem because in the past, to do the types of things you can do as Zapier, you did have to be technical. You had to know what an API was. And if you didn't know what an API was, you just were like, ah, screw it. I can't actually do this sort of stuff. And so for the longest time, the market has kind of been trained to think, I can't do this stuff or like there's not a solution for me for these types of problems. What are some of the use cases that have surprised you the most that you've been able to, to play up to help solve that marketing challenge? You know, I think there's a lot of just pretty basic stuff. So I mentioned, you know, like the email attachment to, uh, you know, Dropbox example, stuff like that is something that everybody has to deal with. Everyone works with email. So you're everyone's trying to figure out how can I do more with email faster? And so a lot of people do things like, you know, I'll, if I tag emails a certain way, make sure that those create tasks in my own personal to-do list, or maybe it delegates it into some task management software like Trello or Asana or Basecamp or whatever that one of my teammates can follow up on. Or maybe I'm parsing this email and sending uh, contact information into a spreadsheet or into a CRM or something like that. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do just with email itself um, to kind of get started that are pretty lightweight. And I think for a lot of folks, email and spreadsheets tend to be like the gateway drug into Zapier. So your team is pretty fresh off a rather large launch Zapier for teams. First off, congratulations on that. To me, it seems like you're taking the first step into building solutions for bigger customers, which in turn means needing the approvals of decision makers who are less technical. That's part of part of moving up market. Why do you guys feel like it's important to move up market like that now? Yeah, I think for us, our guiding light has always been our customer base. And so, you know, we have pretty specific workflows that allow our support team to log feedback from customers. And so we have this big database of feature requests and, you know, the types of users that are requesting them uh, logged in a database somewhere that our product managers sift through. And our product managers are also interacting in support. So like we're trying to understand our users as best we can. We have a data team that's trying to understand the things that they care about. And one of the things we've noticed over the last year is a larger customer type starting to use Zapier. And they have a slightly different set of concerns, slightly different things that can help them. So, for example, things like continuity of business is a big deal. So if I leave an organization, what happens to the workflows I set up inside my account? So those are the types of problems that we set out to solve with Zapier for Teams is letting these business make sure that, that when they set up these workflows that they can rely on them and that they can outlast the people that are using them or that set them up. So really it was our own customer base just pulling us into this new product, Zapier for Teams. So how do you validate those problems for larger customers who really may not 
exist yet. They're mostly writing into support or trying to figure out if what you guys have to offer is going to be a good fit for them. What's your process for that? Is it interviews mostly? Yeah, a lot of interviews, a lot of stuff in support. The nice thing for us is when you have a product like Zapier, a lot of these organizations start adopting it anyway, maybe in an unsanctioned fashion. So they're already using the product. They're just dealing with things that are not as good about it. And so they already love what we have. They already are sold on it. They just need a few workflows that better help them collaborate with other folks in their organization. And since these people are already active users, they're more than happy to tell you the things that they don't like about your product. You just have to say, hey, I want to make this better for you. What do you what do you want? Right. And they'll just tell you. So to to tackle this, have you had to scale up your product team or are they able to manage pretty easily the problems of both your current, more startup customer-based, as well as these larger teams? I mean, what happens to the bottom of the market? Yeah, we did build a new product team that built out Zapier for teams. So it was, you know, a product manager, a couple engineers, a designer, plus a few other shared resources in the organization that helped build it out. So that was a a totally new team uh, that we put together that made that product happen. And without getting too promissory, of course, what are some of the problems that you're seeing that your team has their eye on? You know, I think for us, it's, you know, we, we're just fresh off this launch. So we're, we're paying attention to the things that these teams' customers are starting to, to talk about. So a lot of it's the normal stuff that, you know, enterprise care about, like single sign-on or logging, stuff like that. So we've got our eyes on those types of things to see if that's indeed what they want or if there's something that's unique about our user base um, compared to a, a normal larger customer. How has that switch been from launch mode to iteration mode? Because I know it's a, quite a change in mindset. You know... We try and be iterating all the time. So launches, while from a public perception, feel like this grand, you know, reveal. We're kind of in that constant iteration piece all the time. So like behind the scenes, Zapier for Teams has existed in some sort of beta setup for a while now. And every two weeks, we're improving it for our beta customers. So it's always in that kind of iterate mode over, you know, the cycle of two or three weeks or whatever, like new features getting launched, new polishes getting shipped. So from a day-to-day standpoint, the product teams don't have to make that mental shift of like, ah, we've just completed this massive thing. Now we need to move into a different type of product development. You know, you keep it as similar as you possibly can uh, to make sure that you're always improving the product for your customers. Great, great. And speaking of betas, I was actually recently speaking with a product marketer uh, here at Intercom who mentioned to me with some recent launches we've had how valuable those beta customers have been in terms of how they've shaped the messaging around the product. Did mm-hmm. your uh, did you marketing team find that as well with this process? Absolutely. We have an Zapier advisory group is what we call it, but it's basically just a bunch of customers that like using our newest, freshest stuff. And we do interviews with them and talk to them and we listen to the problems that they say. And we oftentimes borrow the language that they use. So if they talk about a problem in a certain way, our kind of intuition is, well, if we talk about it that way to other customers, probably it will relate to them. Uh, so it's a really smart idea to use that as kind of like your initial messaging to see if it gets traction with other folks. So we've mentioned integrations over and over. I think it's going to be a theme of this conversation as it's a core part of the strategy of Zapier. There's over 800 to date, I think you said. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned at the top that there's one with Intercom that we're quite proud of that automates a lot of workflows. But from a platform perspective, how does your team approach when they'll build an integration versus having partners build them? How do you manage that? Yeah, so 
we launched uh, the very first developer platform on Zapier in 2012. So this was about a year after we launched. In the very first 50 or so integrations we built in-house, since then it's been 90% plus of the integrations have been built by partners. And the scenarios in which we build are, are fairly few and far between. So it's either one massive company, right? So like Google, Microsoft, or something like that does a, a product that we want to be on and be one of the first adopters to make sure that we're there. Or we're onboarding a new teammate and they want to get experience what it's like to build an app. And so they might pick an app that they like or care about just to get some experience using it. Otherwise, our platform has mostly fulfilled all the needs that we have from an integration standpoint. What's the key to supporting those partner developers? How do you set them up for success? You know, I think this is something we've learned over time. Uh, and again, it's it's very similar to a lot of the product development tactics we've been talking about earlier in the interview is paying attention to what they care about, paying attention to their complaints. So, you know, for the longest time, the only way that we had to build an integration on Zapier was with this web builder where you could, you know, build the integration in the browser. And we realized based on talking to a lot of the developers that it kind of sucked for them because they didn't get to use any of the normal dev tooling that they were used to using. And so earlier this year, we launched our CLI version of our dev platform, which allows them to check out code in a branch and collaborate it using Git uh, and use a lot of the tools that developers are normally used to using. So a lot of it just comes from the same sort of product development you would use with any other type of user base applies equally with developers is to just pay attention to things they complain about and try and build things to make their lives easier. Have you found that they've established a little bit of a community there? I mean, are they able to help each other in some ways? You know, that's one thing we haven't invested as much time in. We started doing it a bit more. We have like a, a developer Slack group uh, where folks are hanging out. And so it is starting to happen a little more organically. That's definitely one of the things that I think we're interested in trying to do a better job of nurturing. So when it comes to what these partners are building and developing these days, are there any trends that have emerged you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we see is there's just so many different approaches to the same types of problems, right? So you think CRM, which you're like, oh, CRM's been done for before, right? Certainly there's not a new way to do a CRM. Uh, but every month there's new CRMs launching on Zapier. And when we dig around and play with the tools, indeed, we find, hey, there actually is a unique thing thing that this company's doing that's a little different than somebody else. So I think that's one of the things we've realized over time is that the market is kind of taking this very best of breed fragmented approach to solving these problems for different types of customers. So, you know, if you're a small real estate agent based in the Midwest, you might use a different CRM than if you are a software company based in San Francisco. So I think that's kind of interesting to see how the differences between what fundamentally when you hear a category like CRM, it's like, right. oh, you know, source contacts and let you communicate with them. Maybe you have some tasks or to-dos or deals around them. Like the core concept is basically the same, but the implementation becomes quite different depending on how you're thinking about solving it. So that's been really interesting to pay attention to. Is that an interesting challenge for your support team and that you seem to run into a lot of these patterns, but in actuality, they're being solved in quite different ways? You know, I think... Definitely, it is a challenge for sure. One of the ways that we try and solve it is by thinking about it in terms of the underlying data models. So for us, we don't care as much about the UI skin that's on 
the top of it. So from a support standpoint, we try and train all of our support agents to understand, hey, here's what, you know, under the hood, here's how you look at an API call. Here's how you read a JSON response to understand what data is getting pushed back and forth. And so from that point, a CRM is a CRM, right? A, a contact has a first name, a last name, an email, phone number, a mailing address, whatever. And that way the CRMs do end up being fairly similar. And you don't have to learn as much about the product from like a UI standpoint as um, you might otherwise would. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So one part of the Zapier story that I've always found interesting is that you did dip your toe into VC funding and had a successful seed round a few years ago, but became sustainable after that and I believe are now profitable. Was this lean fundraising approach always the plan or was it something within raising that first round that you were like, you know what, we're good. We're going to find our own way to do this. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about fundraising maybe a little differently than other folks. To me, fundraising is very much a tool in your tool belt. It is an operational tactic that you use when you need it. Uh, and if you don't need it, you don't do it. So I think a lot of companies kind of fall in this spectrum of like, I'm bootstrapping definitely, or I'm like going up the VC you know, like alphabet, series A, series B, series C. Whereas there is a different approach, which is saying, hey, if the in our life cycle of our company, we need this, let's take it. But as our company grows, if we don't need it, let's not take it. And that's a fine way to approach things. And so for us, that early round was helpful because we'd gotten some early traction. We had some momentum. We had customers. But you know, we were still like doing Zapier as a side project and we wanted to go faster. We knew that there was network effects involved in Zapier. If you had the most integrations, uh, you probably were going to be able to build a platform around it. And so we wanted to be able to go a little faster and taking that early seed round did allow us to go fast enough. And it turned out that was all we really needed. Since then, we've been able to go as fast as we care to go um, without taking more money. This obviously worked out pretty well for you and your co-founders. So why do you think it is that it is always so black and white? You're either climbing the ladder or you're screaming that you're bootstrapping. 
You know, I, I think it just really depends on the type of business you're going on. And, you know, if you're bootstrapping, it's easy to stay bootstrapped because you always care about the ROI of everything that you're doing. And because money is kind of at the backdrop of every decision. I think once you go VC, one of the things folks tend to think is you go into this spin, spin, spin mode just to spend and don't often think about like, is this the right time to start spending money? And once you kind of dig yourself a hole, you have to keep raising more money to keep going that direction. It's a treadmill. So I think that you get on this treadmill and it's tough to get off. So I think that's a big part of why you see people continue to raise money is because quite frankly, they have to. So then speaking from your own unique experience, not being beholden to investors in the long term, at least, what decisions were you able to make that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do so unilaterally otherwise? And I mean, vice versa, what did you have to sacrifice with your approach? You know, I think we're able to just be a lot more methodical. We can think about the long-term play of how Zapier gets built out um, and do things that make sense for us. You know, a great example of this at Zapier is we're a 100% remote team. And so, you know, there's more and more investors are okay with that model. But at the time when we were coming in, it was pretty rare. So I think stuff like that, we were just able to do. And we didn't have to fight any battles around it. We just did it. And it's worked out phenomenally well for us. But had we had, you know, more VCs around the tables, who knows? Like maybe we would have had to fight a battle there and maybe would have won, maybe wouldn't have won. It probably depends a lot on how we would have structured the deal with the VC or not. But stuff like that allows us to do things that we think are in the best interest of the company and just do them. We don't have to debate them or give decisions or give board decks or wait. We just do them. You mentioned having a 100% remote team there. I know that's something that whether you're for it or against it, people have very strong views around whether or not you should have a remote team. What, what was the driver for there for you guys? For us, it was a pretty practical decision. Uh, we'd moved to Bay Area around YC. And then at the tail end of that, uh, Mike, one of my co-founders, moved back to Missouri for a brief period of time. So we were working remotely again. And because we'd started as a side project, we were used to working through like these types of tools. We'd work, you know, GitHub pull requests and through chat and stuff like that. And then we started to need to hire. And we'd never hired anyone before. It wasn't something we had experience with. And we're in the Bay Area where we don't really know anybody. And the advice is just hire old co-workers folks that you trust and know you can work with. And so I had a buddy in Chicago who was running a Cubs message board, and this was before they won the World Series. So used to working with angsty folks, I figured, <laughs> hey, he can probably do a pretty good job at running support. Uh, we had an engineering friend back in Columbia, Missouri that I'd worked with before who I knew was really good. So we teamed up with him. And so it kind of just became remote just because that was the best pass forward for us at the time. And then we got good at it and decided, hey, like this is actually an advantage for us to do it this way. And we just kept doing it that way. When you say you got good at it, what was the biggest lesson you had to learn to reach that point? Yeah, I think building a lot of the discipline around documentation and communication up front. So knowing how to write good readmes and how to's and all that sort of stuff and how to run meetings and give feedback and do all that sort of things were really important for us early on. And, you know, once we kind of built that into the DNA, didn't matter that, you know, small remote team, big remote team, a lot of the core principles were the same. So many of our listeners are from early stage startups and a good chunk of them are, in fact, bootstrapping. They're taking that route. 
Mm-hmm. One of the easiest paths to getting press, though, in this industry is through funding announcements. So, I mean, you guys had one of those, but clearly had to find some alternative ways to get people talking about Zapier and get the word out about the company. So what methods did you find success with? Funding announcements tend to be one of the worst ways to get new customers for 99.99% of products. So if you're bootstrapped and thinking, oh, if only we had a funding announcement, trust me, that's not going to solve your problem. Uh, The main thing you need to do is figure out where your customers are hanging out. How are they solving problems that you solve already? Uh, Are they doing Google search for it? Uh, Do they go to industry events? Do they... Uh, are there communities that they hang out in? And you need to identify where kind of those core customers are spending their time. And that really informs your marketing decisions early on. So if it is search, okay, maybe you're trying to get pages that rank for it, or maybe you're doing some PPC or SEM around it. Uh, if there's community groups, okay, maybe are you trying to tap into that? You definitely need to be a member. Do you need to speak at a conference? That type of stuff. So I think for us, it was a lot of that types of things, figuring out where our folks, how they solve these current problems and trying to tap into those. So did you spend a lot of time on developer forms? Uh, it was actually not developer forums specifically, but forums of these software apps. So Salesforce had a forum, Evernote had a forum, HiRise had a forum where users were talking about their integration problems. And yep, that's where we were in the early days. So full disclosure uh, for listeners, I also went to the University of Missouri, I believe at the same time as you, but somehow we did not know each other. <laughs> so as someone who you know, got their start outside of the Silicon Valley bubble, you hadn't gone to school in the area or made connections working at a larger tech firm. As far as building and running a successful startup, how did that influence your approach? What unique perspective do you think that time outside of the bubble gave you? Well, I mean, when you're in the Midwest, when you're in a city like Columbia, there is no such thing as VC. You don't like just walk out the door and get a couple hundred thousand dollars because you're a smart engineer. You have to think about what is going to build a sustainable business from the get-go. So we're thinking, how do people pay us? How do we get, yeah, it's basically that. Like, how do people pay us? That's the signal that we're delivering market value to folks. And thinking about that from the very get-go. And we had, like, some great examples. In Columbia, there's this company, Veterans United, which is founded by two brothers who've had a handful of successful companies so far. And every single one of them, they've been 50-50 on and entirely bootstrapped. The latest one, Veterans United, has something like 1,500 employees. So wildly successful by every metric. And it was all done bootstrapped, more or less. So, you know, I think seeing those examples and knowing like, hey, this is like a normal path that most businesses go through. The exception to the norm is fundraising. So that gave us kind of this insight that, yeah, you can do it. So you you mentioned thinking about if people were going to be paying you from the get-go, how did you approach early pricing then? I assume there was not a free period. Yeah, our very our beta program was kind of unique. You had to pay us to be a part of our beta program. Uh, and there was no trial either. So it was pay us product sight unseen. And so we told them one-time fee, get you into the beta. You have access for as long as the beta is. The beta might last three months. It might last three days. We don't really know. It's just going to take the time that it takes to build this thing. And so we had that fee and that would let us get people in the door who actually cared about the problem and weren't just like interested in tech, you know, just not just like, oh, this seems like a cool thing. Let's just give it a, the old college try. We wanted folks who were like, no, this is a real problem that I need to be solving and 
immediately. And it allowed us to more easily prioritize those early customer calls and figure out who should we, who we should be talking to because these folks are motivated to right. solve the problem. Well, if you're willing to pay for it, then it clearly is something that needs to be fixed. Yep, exactly. So what advice do you have for those who are building startups in a similar locale to a Columbia, Missouri? What What do they need to do to succeed? And does that involve having someone relocate to the Valley? I think the biggest thing is just focus on solving a problem and figure out where your customers hang out and spend do what it takes to get access to your customers. It, may, it probably doesn't involve moving to the Valley or having someone located in the Valley. It might, depending on the product that you're selling and the type of users that you have, but it's a very good chance that it doesn't. So I think a lot of times, like the products you're building and the customers that you're building it for, who dictates where you need to be. Nine times out of 10, uh, where you're at is just fine. I think that's an absolutely great take that a lot of listeners can relate to. Wade, this has been a lot of fun. Where can our listeners go to learn more about Zapier and what's going on with you and your team? Yeah, Zapier.com. Uh, our blog has a lot of the fresh announcements. So Zapier.com slash blog. You can pay attention there. And of course, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Wade Foster. So if you want to um, you know, chat with me there, that's great as well. Well, from one uh, Mizzou grad to another, thanks again. <laughs> awesome, Adam. Glad to be here. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.